Nightmarica is an independently produced podcast. If you like what we are doing, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts and showing us your support at patreon.com slash Aaron Sagers. Welcome to Nightmarica, a podcast that takes you on a tour of the abnormal, paranormal, weirdly true, and truly weird in every corner across this nation. Because whether it's ghosts, aliens, monsters, or monstrous humans, there's something strange in your neighborhood. Episode 49, The Dutchman Haunting, The Lost Ed and Lorraine Warren Case. Ahoy, hoy, Nightmaricans! Welcome to another episode. Of course, I am your host, Aaron Sagers, journalist, researcher of the weird, and currently you can find me on Paranormal Caught on Camera on Travel Channel and Discovery+. Plus. So, I'm super excited to have this gentleman with me, this guest co-host for this episode, and you guys, you, you know the drill. I've talked about this a lot, like, I, I like doing these podcasts because I get to bring in people that I've been friends with for a long time, people I respect, and really get them to tell a story, share a story from their own experience. And now this guy, Mitch, who is about to join us, I met him, must have been a decade or more ago, maybe about 11 years ago at a horror convention in Orlando, Florida called Spooky Empire. We were on, I forget the official title of this panel, but we were on a panel talking about the paranormal, about horror, and um, and we just clicked on there, on that panel, and then remained friends throughout the years, and uh, just a heck of a great guy, and really just, this is an incredible story that he's about to lay out for you, and I'm going to save it for him to break it down, but... Mitch Hyman is best known as the creator and writer of the comic book and film character Bubba the Redneck Werewolf. That's right. Bubba the Redneck Werewolf. We'll get into that as well. His career started in broadcasting for FM radio, and then he later went into the advertising industry as a writer. Mitch is also a published novelist. He's a short story fiction writer. His debut film, Bubba the Redneck Werewolf, was a most popular feature during its Hulu run. And then it later garnered international acclaim. And he has, (laughs) the movie has been dubbed in several languages, which I always just love seeing someone's creation then dubbed in other languages um and the film is actually still currently available on amazon prime and on tubi but we're going to talk a little bit about that but this dutchman haunting story is really going to be the main attraction so without further ado let me bring this gentleman into the feed mitch thanks so much for joining me today man Aaron, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I really do. How Good long? How long ago was it that we were at that Spooky Empire panel? Oh, it was over God, a decade. Of, yeah, the mists of time. Maybe it's for BC or BCE at this point. But oh God, uh, it had to be around at least 11, 12 years ago. Yeah, that that sounds about right. Do you remember the official? Because I was approaching it. I was there for the paranormal pop culture angle, talking about the connection of the entertainment of the unexplained. This is, I think, even before I started doing TV stuff. And you were obviously on there as a horror writer. 
Um, I believe it was paranormal. It was paranormal fiction writing we were talking about. Okay. How to write about paranormal instances. How to do, tell a ghost story. How to tell a werewolf story. A vampire story. Yeah. We also an, another panelist on that one was uh, Jason Sorrell, who was the Imagineer right. at that time, who wrote the Haunted Mansion book and. Not on. I haven't had him on this podcast, but I've since interviewed him for other things. So apparently, good relationships were forged that day. And and man, with that said, I I am. We're hopefully still. We're seeing light at the end of this this COVID tunnel, and uh, I can't wait to get back to cons. You know, tell me. Oh, tell me about SDC San Diego Comic Cons, where I usually am a panelist, and I have a, a lot of connections, a lot of people I deal with, and a lot of friends I see. Two years in a row, it's been canceled. So it's kind of like there's just this, let me put this way, there's a hunger for all of us to get out there and go see our friends and get back into the groove of it all again. And let's just hope we can all pull it off. And I think within the next like three to four months, we're going to start seeing the ice start to crack. We'll be able to get back out again. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, let's get into a little bit about you before we get into the main story. Uh, Yeah, okay. Uh, The For people that don't know, give us the break i mean pretty much the name bubba the redneck werewolf says a lot but give us a little I bit of insight of about bubba. So <laughs> <laughs> i mean give it you know break down bubba and the movie and also the other character that we've we've seen the you know and and i know we're we're i know you know where i'm going with that so lay it out for us it's very simple bubba's the original florida man before there was a specific florida man there was a lot of guys I grew up with here in central Florida because, you know, I originally was born in the Bronx, New York, and then my family moved down here in like 1971. So I come to rural Florida and it's like culture shock deluxe. Okay. You come from the Bronx into yeah. the swamps and it's like, wow. So you made your own entertainment. There wasn't any place really. So you found a lot of crazy things to do and you had a lot of crazy friends. So we go out, we race trucks, and we go, you know, fishing and gators and all the other nonsense. So basically, the city boy turns to a country boy, so I'm a southern fried Yankee at this point. But I hang out with these crazy friends, and they do some of the most bizarre stuff I've ever seen. And I'm like, as time goes on, it's really impressed upon me. And I decide that I want to get into the comic industry because I just loved comic books as a kid. So I get in the comic industry, and I have, you know, I want to come up with a character, and I come up with. Basically, I loved werewolves. I loved Supernatural. Mm-hmm. I thought it'd be really funny if you had a country ding-dong werewolf. You know, basically, oh, you know, dumbass country werewolf. Well, it's really funny because I originally had Bubba as a horror character and a good friend of mine, Michael Broom, who works on Walking Dead, The Orville, a lot of other shows, is a storyboard artist or is a design artist. He got together with me because he was working at Disney at the time, uh, just working in the parks, a character artist, and I needed an artist for this comic book. We put it together. And we did this horror comic to start with. And Bubba was this vicious child killer and just terrible human being. And as time goes on, I wanted to bring him back, but I didn't want to bring him back that way because my taste in life had changed. There's a little more to the humor side of things. So I brought him back as a humorous character, more based on the people I grew up with. So it turns out that I have this great character. He's hilarious. He does all kinds of goofy stuff, drinks a lot of beer, smokes cigars, wears a red hat. The hat is a number three hat because. I wanted to give him a curse, and the curse was the curse of Babe Ruth because he was traded from the Red Sox to the Yankees at the time. you got to remember, this is like 2004, I'm deciding to give him the hat. Mm-hmm. And the Red Sox still had never won a World Series. So we put the hat on his head, and that was the curse of Bubba. So as time goes on, of course, the Sox win. 
The hat's even funnier to a lot of us at this point. And, you know, the character kind of took off with people. They enjoyed him because he was a, he's a really big, tough kind of guy, but really sweet, really nice. Let me put it this way. If you had a zombie attack on your property at three o'clock in the morning, you could call Bubba and he'd show up as long as you had beer. Huh. If you had beer, Bubba would show up and do whatever you want him to do. And he was pretty much like a lot of my friends. Like things would go wrong and I'd call one of my buddies up and go, hey, this is this, this, my car's in a ditch. Oh well, yeah, man. Okay, great. I'll come get you. But uh, guy beer. Yeah, I got some <laughs> beer. Okay. It's in the car. Well, hell, let's pull the car out. He's like Spider-Man, except in Central Florida, friendly neighborhood werewolf. Yeah, at this point, he's kind of powered by Coors Light. (laughs) We'll go with that. So that's how the character got, you know, started. The comic did very well. I started pushing to see if I could figure out how to make a film because, you know, a lot of people go to Hollywood, try to get options, things like that. And it works. It doesn't work sometimes. I thought, you know, I've been in audio video a long time. I know a lot of people. Let's see if I can pull this off. And so I did makeup. I worked at Halloween Horror Nights, which is like, that's where I met Jason Sorrell, by the way. I was doing Halloween Horror Nights, doing as a makeup oh. artist. And so he was a manager back then at Universal before he went to Disney. Wow, so, small world. Oh, don't even make oh. that joke. Don't even, don't <laughs> I didn't even it. intend to make the joke. But Everybody just... has that earworm right now. Just blank <laughs> it. Just, just walk away. You'll be all right. But anyway, the thing is, we decided to go ahead and try and do the film independently. We pulled it off. It was crazy. Everything worked out. The thing got picked up, got distributed. And the thing I find fascinating is that we wound up on Hulu and we wound up as one of their Halloween fe- Halloween features and one of their most popular for, I don't know, nine, 10 months. It was wonderful. And then Amazon still has it. It's over Tubi right now. But what I got fascinated with is when we went to Europe and it got picked up for Silvertone. Now, Silvertone or Silverline is the German streaming service. So it got dubbed in German first. And the funniest thing was they see myself, because I play the devil in the movie. It's a long story. You can go take a look. And the devil in real life, you can ask my wife. Anyway, for anybody who deals with me, that it got dubbed. Now, the funniest part to me when the dubbing went down was that I heard a word that was not German. There's a scene where we have this gypsy who's discussing Bubba's fate and what's going to happen to him to talk to his girlfriend, Bobby Joe. And I hear the word shiksa. I'm like going... Shiksa? Like, oh, there's no German word for that word. That's Yiddish. Yeah. So I got a hold of a friend of mine who knew, you know, the distributor. I said, ask them, who dubbed this? Mel Brooks? What's going on here? <laughs> I mean, that word, and then a few other Yiddish words in Plattsdeutsch. I'm like going, okay, whatever you guys want to do is good with me. As long as you're not confusing people, I don't care what goes on. But it's just, it's funny how this became bigger and the Global Village picked it up. That's the point I'm making, that yeah. they enjoyed it. That there are rednecks in every country. And as I've done the fan base over the world, there's always somebody out there with a big truck out in the middle of the field doing something really stupid with either dynamite or some beer. And it's a global thing. So I say that if we ever have to sit there and get the world to kind of come together, we can just basically go out in the fields, somebody just start a barbecue, get some beer, and just get some trucks go mudding back and forth and talk about whose engine's bigger or better or whatever it is. And you'll have it all worked out. Yeah, you're definitely, you're more, I think, uh, Florida than Bronx uh, these days with that philosophy. Thank you so much. Yes, unfortunately. (laughs) And I say, unfortunately, the sophistication. However, there is one thing, though. I am fairly sophisticated because I do know the right wine that goes with roadkill. Tan. (laughs) Okay, tan wine goes with roadkill. Just let you know. (laughs) 
You, uh, and yeah, speaking of the devil character, I have to say that I've seen a lot of people dress as the devil, but you, sir, your, your ability to look like the devil is uh, perhaps the, the peak, perhaps the, you know, the best that I've ever seen. I, I think that's oh, a compliment. Thanks, it simply comes down to this. Um, I've always been kind of a huckster in my life because I've been promoting and, you know, you go in this business, you promote. So basically, my devil's a used car salesman. Don't buy anything from him. Trust me on that. Okay. And stay away from the undercoating. You don't even want to know what that involves. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I mean, and I do like, I do like my, my devil to be the classic, you know, red and horned and bearded, you know, so that's, uh, you, you nailed it. So, oh, thank well, you. Let's we're going to get into this story, but before I do that, we have it's not really a game, it's more multiple choice, but it is a segment that I call Choose Your News. Choose, choose, choose your your new 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 news. That was a terrible echo. But <laughs> we look the production value on this podcast, we don't I didn't you know question anything. I just don't know why I'm sitting on a milk box. That's why I wanted to ask you. <laughs> just sit on the milk box when I go. Really? <laughs> okay, never mind. <laughs> well, okay. This involves. I'm going to give you two headlines, and then you choose which one you. It's pretty much. It's you know. It's like Bubba the Redneck Werewolf. You pretty much automatically get the concept once I say it. So okay, choose your news. I'm going to give you two news. headlines. That's it. He said Bubba. That's it. It's fake news. Walk away, everybody. Let's go. <laughs> so, all right. Two headlines here. Headline one: Elon Musk could help aliens notice humans. That's headline one. Alberta Alberta War Room says Netflix kids movie Bigfoot Family disparages oil industry. Which okay. headline? I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm kind of bored with Elon Musk. I'm going to go with the second one because that's fascinating. Is that Canadian? Yeah, it is. It's Alberta in uh, in Canada. That's right. So the other Florida, trust me. <laughs> yeah. This is this comes to us from the globalnews.ca.canada from March 12th, so a couple weeks ago. Alberta's government energy war room is going to battle with a Netflix children's movie saying it inaccurately portrays the oil industry. The Canadian Energy Centre says more than 1,000 people have sent an automated letter off its website to Netflix Canada to let it know the animated film sounds like propaganda. Now, here's where the paranormal stuff kicks in. Bigfoot Family is about the son of the mythical creature. Mythical. No, not correct. The son of the mythical creature who fights an oil company, and it made its debut on the streaming service earlier this year. The family-friendly adventure follows Adam and his dad as they take on an evil oil tycoon who wants to explode a fictional place called Rocky Valley for its oil. And the Energy Center says in a statement that the movie villainizes energy workers and tells lies about the oil industry. <laughs> and it and it goes on from there. But what I love about this is that you have oil industry executives saying that the kids movie Bigfoot Family wrongly portrays the oil industry as evil. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's sort of like they're doing the work uh, for 
Net, for the movie itself. They're doing the publicity for the movie. Uh, um, I, mean, I was just curious what the tobacco industry was busy. So they decided yeah. to go over there for a while. Is that what it was? You know, yeah, exactly. It's, it's like, it's like uh, um, a movie about uh, men with twirly mustaches and monocles <laughs> tying women to train tracks. And well, all the nice snidely whiplash from the old yeah, Russian yeah. bowlers. Basically, you know, I mean, Dudley Do, right? Mountie, sure. Okay. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's like, we, the consortium of twirly, mustachioed, monocled men, take offense to this depiction of us as villains. And the beer strokers. We're going to go yeah, into exactly. that also because we are seriously. It's like, we only did that one time. And remember, evil is only for people with facial hair. Just remember that. But sha- you know, most of us have shaved heads. Yeah. I want Patrick Stewart to finally do a villain. You know, I got news for you. Have you noticed that? Every bald guy decides that it's time to become a villain. I mean, Patrick Stewart, yeah, well, he's, he's, I guess, yeah, he pulls off the good bald guy. Like, he pulls off the, the hero bald guy, bald guy. Um, but yeah, pretty much the reason I grow facial hair is so I can then stroke it while in deep thought or when hatching a plan. Yeah, I do the same thing. It's kind of like going, do I want the number one or the number two combo? Should I get that with extra, (laughs) should I get with the extra sauce or is that the super size? Damn it. (laughs) Or... Why not both? Uh, see, but, that's all oh, that throws them. See, don't do the don't, don't do the double. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is yeah, since this is an audio medium, nobody sees us uh with the uh Mitch, if you can't see him, has a fantastic beard. But we'll if, you get, if, you get thir- if you get on Aaron's third tier, now that's the one that's an extra five bucks a month, you get to actually <laughs> see all this. <laughs> and, and for ten bucks stills. And for fifteen bucks, you don't get to see anything. We'll just go like that, it's over, and everybody can leave you alone. How's and that? I'm working on a, a tier for the Patreon, patreon.com slash Aaron Sagers, where I'll just actually send beard clippings to people. I don't know what level that's going to be. And I don't know grow who would want host. to. Yeah. Just so use the DNA and grow your own host. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, they would, uh, I think they could, they could do that pretty easily. They just we'll need a, a comic book. People yeah. love that. You know? <laughs> yeah. You and sea monkeys. Okay. <laughs> I never, you know, I I always wanted to order the sea monkeys from the back of the comic books, and I never did, and I'm filled with deep regret that I never ordered them. You knew what those were, right? They were they were uh, shrimp, right? Or they, they were, were um, they were brine shrimp that you would get at the fish store. You could feed your you could feed your guppy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the the comic book panel. They always looked like they were having so much fun. The family of it was the a great sea monkey family. It really was. I mean, yeah. like mom, dad, the kids, you know, great. I mean, let's face it. The sea monkeys had better family values than most of us, you know, in the real world. Let's face it. I think maybe that was what it was. We wanted to be join the undersea kingdom and you'll be one of them. Maybe Aquaman would stop by for lunch every now and then. Right. And actually it makes me wonder if the, the um, if the snorks, I mean, I wonder if the snorks had to pay the sea monkey people any, because that's a that's a pretty clear. It's like we have the Smurfs. Now we're gonna, you know, take this the Smurfs, put them underwater. They're basically ripping off the. Uh, you the sea you may not want to draw that line because there could be a copyright infringement going on here between the sea monkeys and the snorks. They did have those little like you know the sea monkeys had those little like things on the top of their head, and you know the snorks only had the one. So true. You, be, you cut it back by one, you don't have a copyright infringement. You go to two to three, you may have a trademark problem. This business is a pain in the neck. I got news for you. Seriously. I mean, the one great paranormal thing should be IP. 
not intellectual property, intellectually paranormal because the way this thing all works. Well, that's and yeah, that's why that's why lawyers exist. I always thought, and this is such a lawyers tangent. exist. I always thought they were ghosts, <laughs> beard strokers. Every one of them beard strokers. Every. I always thought with the Smurfs and the Snorks. I think the Smurfs came first. I always wondered if okay, if you look at the Smurfs, they're they're so the hats they all wear all have this the protrusion, and then the Snorks all have the snorkel on the top of their head. So I always wondered if there was some sort of evolutionary uh, relationship between the Snorks and the Smurfs, and perhaps the Smurfs were covering up some sort of vestigial snorkel that they no longer used. Ladies and gentlemen, tune in to Night America next week when we discuss this, the value of this of the mystic cryptid Smurf versus the Snork. I mean, it's okay if your mind is blown. It's you know, I mean, I I just laid a a a truth bomb theory on you. Do I you guess think they're wearing those hats to cover up, you know, the the snorkel. Is that that's it? it. That's that's what I'm saying. Well, you know, some people used to, I used to wear a hat to cover my point, but it was a different story. But I was able to just kind of burnish that down a little bit. But maybe I should get the snork hat and paint myself blue. I paint myself red already anyway. Why not? Yeah, I mean, just uh, I say, oh, look, <laughs> you could, you could, you could join the the world of the blue. The uh, you could be a blue man. Uh, <laughs> have a whole whole group with you. Uh, well, okay, this is gone. Off this has gone off on a terrible tangent. Get the rails back on this train, okay? We're we're bringing it back. We're bringing it back. Okay, <laughs> so time together. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going. We're going to the seventies, and we have a story for you. And Mitch, I want you to lay this out for us. Let's hear about this Dutchman story and the connection to Ed and Lorraine Warren. Nightmareka is brought to you by the Smell of Fear Candle Co. I love the way a candle can change the entire vibe and character of a room. And Smell of Fear brings a lot of literary and film characters to a room. These scents are inspired by characters and settings from stories and history. For example, there is the Telltale Heart Candle from the Essence of Poe collection. And that smells like the infamous oak floorboards with just a hint of tobacco that I imagine the crazed narrator of that story was frantically smoking. I also dig the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat candle from the Cinematic Sense Collection. Jaws is one of my favorite movies, and this candle, it puts me right in the action. It smells like salty sea air with the wood of an old fishing boat and just a hint of whiskey that Quint was most certainly knocking back. In fact, I was just burning the Gonna Need a Bigger Boat candle last night, as I was reading a book, and it really just set the scene for me. Okay, I'm a paranormal a researcher and journalist, and I have to I have to say that I love the Sasquatch candle, obviously, from the Cryptid Collection. No, it, it does not smell like that stinky beast we all love, but instead it is inspired by the heavily forested areas in the Northwest that Bigfoot is said to roam, with hints of redwoods, cedar, pine, and earth. Other collections include the Literary Redolence or Televised Temptations. There is also the Whiff of King. Think of Stephen King. So with more than 80 candles and counting, Smell of Fear Candle Co. has you covered. And they have new candles released monthly. For instance, there is the Beware the Crimson Peak. That is a 
new scent that smells like earthy red clay. And I love the TV show What We Do in the Shadows. And that theme song, You're Dead, it gets stuck in my brain all the time. So there is the You're Dead candle, which is an homage to What We Do in the Shadows. And it smells like red currant. And there is also the Spellman candle from inspired by The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. And that has a classic dragon's blood scent. So these candles are a coconut soy blend with no paraffin, so they are eco-friendly. They're organic, renewable, sustainable, minimal environmental impact. They're also clean burning, and there is almost zero soot in comparison to other types of wax candles. I also like the fact that they are slow burning, and they have this fantastic scent throw. It fills an entire room, and it's nice that they're not made with nasty chemicals. So these candles are available in several shapes and sizes, as well as in different wax melts. Plus, Smell of Fear Candle Co. donates a portion of profit to various nonprofit organizations monthly. Past donations have gone to COVID relief funds and pet rescue organizations. And that's, that's just really nice. I like supporting a company that supports others. Finally, with the code NIGHTMERICA, you can get 15% off your order at thesmelloffear.com. Again, code NIGHTMERICA for 15% off. So check them out, Smell of Fear Candle Co. They make good sense. Very simple. And again, like I said, we were discussing comedy just now, but remember, you know, I mean, I'm a filmmaker. So again, we mentioned Mel Brooks earlier. Remember he did Elephant Man, Blazing Saddles, Francis, my favorite year. As a filmmaker, you're telling a story. And this is a phenomenal story. And it's one that I've had in my back pocket for, I can't even tell you how many years. It starts with a friend of mine who's called Dr. John Catapano. John and I have been friends since around, I'd say around 1989. And we met, you know, because he has the same interest I did in comic books writing. He was a writer also. He'd done some audio video work and things like that. He'd been a cameraman for ABC. He had been working with National Geographic. He actually went to Antarctica on a couple of expeditions that became documentaries later on. Uh, he was a combat photographer. And he always was the kind of person that to me was always fearless. Uh, I saw John go into situations most people wouldn't even deal with, but and discuss things that most people would kind of cringe about, but John could just kind of go at it. And I always wondered what really sent him off. And it turned out after knowing him about five or six years, he finally one night we're sitting there, we were at a convention, having a couple of drinks at an outside bar and at the convention, and this is one before you and I, Aaron, we were talking about ghost hunting and things like that. He brought up the fact that he had known Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now I wasn't exactly familiar with the Warrens at this time, because I was more familiar, believe it or not, with Hans Holzer. When I was younger, I used to really be fascinated with the Hans Holzer books. Right. Great, great books. And, you know, just going to give a shout out to the Holzer files with my buddy, Dave Schrader uh, on that. Yeah. But he, he, literally wrote the book on uh, ghost hunting. He did. For a lot of us, that was the go-to because we didn't know a lot about the Warrens at the time. So John starts telling me that he is a college student in 1974. Now, 1974 was a banner year for hauntings. If you look it up, you'll see that there was the Amityville. There was the Prawn family. Uh, there were several other incidences. So 74 was the year after The Exorcist came out. 
Now, again, there's an old saying in mysticism that thoughts are things, words have power. So people after the Exodus were more focused on paranormal. So a lot of energy in the air, a lot of things going on. Maybe it was just a time that was ripe. Uh, I don't know. All I know is that this was a very bumper crop of hauntings for 74. But the haunting I'm going to tell you about was nothing like the other ones in a lot of ways. They have a lot of commonality. There was a child involved using, let's say, a Ouija board, or there was an incident where the house had been built on an area that wasn't, you know, very good for building a house on, maybe a burial ground or something like that, or there was somebody involved with it, or maybe there's a witch involved, like, you know, the Bathsheba incident. But this was something really unusual, and this is how it went down. So in 1974, John is a pre-med student at William Patterson University. During the fall festival, they decided to have like some other things, like instead of just the bobbing for apples or the usual things you do, dances, whatever, they decided to have the Warrens, who were not unlocal because they were in Connecticut. They were in the general vicinity. They'd been known in the air, the tri-state area of Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, even Pennsylvania. So they had them come out to the school and do a talk on paranormal investigations, ghosts, and what have you. Now, the school also was home to a mansion called the Hobart Mansion. Now, the Hobart Mansion was part of the school, granted to the school, and was used for the administration for record keeping or parties or other things. It was a very, very fancy upscale, you know, a typical mansion. It was built in like the 1700s, 1760s or whatever. And it also was the scene of several incidents that created basically another haunting. It was well known on the campus. Anybody who's attended the university has always heard the stories about that the Hobart Mansion is, you know, is haunted. So John had been working in the administration and he worked in the basement area of the school occasionally, of the mansion occasionally. He'd hear noises and hear a child crying one time, heard footsteps. He heard people whispering and talking. So he was familiar with it. So he went to the lecture. He watched Ed and Lorraine. He walked up saying he was the reporter who's going to be working with him from the school newspaper called The Beacon at the time. And he was going to be working with him that evening. So and this great. is... This is during the time, sorry to interrupt, this is during sure. the time when, like you said, this, this is before Amityville, this is after the Conjuring case really right. was was kicking off, and this is when they were making the rounds, as we've seen in the movies of like the slideshows, they're clicking through the slideshows and showing exactly. evidence, so we, I think in the opening scenes of the Conjuring, this is kind of what what we would be witnessing. Pretty much, you know, I mean, John never saw the movie, to be honest with you. I have. And for what he's describing, it sounded like pretty much the standard yeah. thing that they would do. So because they were known to do this, they went to their, a lot of schools and stuff. Now, John, at this point, like I said, decided, you know, they asked him, would he mind coming along to see what they're going to do tonight at the Hobart? He said, I worked in the mansion. So, yeah, I'm very familiar. And he and Lorraine kind of hit it off because they started talking about John when he was younger, had a couple of paranormal incidents. and. She said, you know, would you like to come with us? And he said, of course. So they walk out of the school. They walk out of the building that they're lecturing in. As they're walking out, another teacher approaches them and introduces himself to the Warrens. And he knows who the Warrens are and says that he has a friend who's having a paranormal problem. Now, Ed Lorraine said that they were interested, but they were going to go do the Hobart Mansion that night. And he'd like to come along and they'll discuss it afterwards. So they all went across. They went to the Hobart Mansion. They went to the mansion, went downstairs. 
Lorraine did her investigation, which she determined was echoes. Now, in hauntings, a lot of you are very familiar with this, know what they mean by an echo. An echo basically is like a movie that keeps playing over and over again. It's nothing going on at that time, but it's a reflection of something that did happen there. Sort and, of what we would, uh, in, in sort of the mar- modern parlance, we would call it a residual haunt. Exactly. That would be a residual. Thank you. That would be a residual haunting. I was wondering, I was trying to get the term. Thank you. So it involved a young child who was sickly. He had, he didn't do very well. The nurse was taking care of him. I believe the child might've passed away and that was part of the residual haunting. So Lorraine determined it was nothing really dangerous or deadly there, anything like that. It was just going to be an echo, a residual haunting that they just have to deal with the fact there'll be noise and so on and so forth. So they go and they leave. As they're leaving, the other gentleman who came up for the other teacher came up and said, reiterated that he really needed to get him to take a look at this incident that's happening to a friend of his. Now, the friend was a fellow instructor at the college, and she was a music teacher, music instructor. Her husband was a fine artist at the time, and he had gallery showings and things like that. But there was an incident involving their daughter. They had two daughters and a son. One of the daughters had decided she wanted a Ouija board for her birthday after seeing, you know, the, the family, I guess the older sister took her to see the exodus. Now, this child is about maybe 11, 12, and the older sibling took is like 17, 18. She's a student at the college. So 18, 19, something like that, took, you know, took her to the show. Kid was fascinated, like a lot of kids were back then. Even I saw the exorcist when I was younger. I saw it when I, you know, younger kid. And I have to admit, it was more than any monster movie I've ever seen or anything I've ever encountered. Even The Haunting or Legend of Hill House is nothing compared to this thing. Very visceral, you know? Yeah, it was a game changer as far as paranormal pop culture goes. It, it you know, it did launch essentially this this genre in a new way right and you're 11 years old and you but you're 11 years old you see this you decide you want a ouija board yeah her parents weren't really hip to all this stuff at that time and she's a music and art and default as an artist and of course with that kind of very you know that kind of background you're gonna be very you know open-minded i suppose so they got her a ouija board and after the ouija board then everything started happening now again we're talking about about the third to fourth week of October, okay? So the Warrens agree to go and take a look at what's going on. They want John to come along because Ed, Ed and Lorraine had kind of hit it off with John, and John really hit it off with Lorraine. They had some really interesting discussions about where they think that this kind of energy goes when people die, how entities enter into this world, how they get stuck here, what they want when they are here. And it was a very interesting discussion that they had. We can go into that later on, but let's get to the meat of the story right now. Okay, that's more important. So they request that John go see a priest. Now, John's a Catholic. He hadn't done confession in a while, but they said it would be better to protect him. Lorraine already had an inkling something wasn't right, but she also was making sure that, like a good investigator, she had her bases covered. So she wanted to make sure that John, being a Catholic, had gone to confession and was at least protected in that way okay i mean they took they 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 definitely took their catholicism very seriously like they they did they it was not just for show they did take the belief of things very seriously regardless of what else you might think about them they were legit as far as that faith they were very they were very, very well grounded in their faith yeah and that can help a lot in these kind of investigations because faith can be the thing to hold you back 
gets you away from a lot of stuff. And that's what happened here. John goes, sees the priest, gets himself confessed, takes care of business. And then the next day they go drive out to this house that's in the town, which is nearby the university. It, and it's Wayne, New Jersey, which is Wayne, New Jersey is named for a very famous Revolutionary War hero, Mad Anthony, General Mad Anthony Wayne. And you got to remember this area was settled by the Dutch. So you had a lot of very famous families, including the Schuylers, who Betsy Schuyler was engaged to Alexander Hamilton. And all the families knew each other and kind of there was intermarrying or whatever. So you had a lot of different families up there. You had the Van Dynes, the Van Ripers, you had uh, the Schuylers. So it was really Dutch country up there, you know, that part of New Jersey. That's who settled it. So they go to this house and the house now had been moved from its original location to this location. That was not uncommon because a lot of houses up in a lot of the more famous historic houses in New Jersey have become state parks, but they had other outbuildings or smaller houses that were part of the of the estate. But as the estate got divvied up or turned to a state park, the house would be moved someplace else. So it wasn't unusual for this to happen. So the house had been moved, and these people had been living there for about, oh, about three or four years at the time. Now Nothing had gone on, been pretty basic, pretty quiet, until the kid got the Ouija board. And after the Ouija board, things started going really wrong. Uh, they had incidents where they had seen faces at a window that was like 20 feet above ground level. They had neighbors reporting that they were, when they weren't home, the curtains would pull back and they'd see some dark figure looking out at them. And nobody could figure out exactly what was going on at this point. And as this was going on, the child herself, the younger one, the 11-year-old, was getting sicker and sicker. She was starting to waste away. They weren't sure if she had cancer, she had tuberculosis, or some other disease that was just basically draining her life energy. They didn't know what to make of it. So the kid at this point had been moved to a relative's house, and they were barely living in the house at this point. They were going between, I believe, a friend's house and a hotel at this point. They had the older daughter with them still, and the younger son had been sent to relatives also. So when John arrived, it was just Ed and Lorraine, the lady and the gentleman who owned the house, the husband and wife, and him. So now they go around to the back of the house where the garage is located, and they enter through the garage. They, Lorraine and John are the ones who enter the house because John has a sensitivity to stuff, and Lorraine picked up on that. Ed stayed outside kind of as an anchor, allowing Lorraine to go in and look around. So John was kind of going along with Lorraine to kind of keep an eye on Lorraine for Ed. That's how it started. They walk into the house, and within about a minute, Lorraine's already ready to pass out. She feels like there's, according to what John's telling me, there are needles like in the side of her head. She's short of breath. She can't stand up straight. Then John starts feeling it. He starts to fall over and he feels the needles pricking him. Thousands and thousands of tiny needles. Lorraine starts to pass out. John gets her and yells out for help. The owner of the house, the wife, comes in and basically helps all of them get out to the backyard to sit at a picnic table. Lorraine, at this point, does not want to go back in the house. John's reticent, too. He's not happy about it. He doesn't go back in the house, but Lorraine, the first thing out of her mouth, according to John, was that there's something in there, and it is really not good. 
And this, yeah, it's, it's intense enough that it basically kicks her out of there. Like it yeah. does not that it does not want them in there. According to Ed, this has happened hasn't happened to her very often. This is a this is really rare. And actually, he, according to John, seemed a little more nervous than had been before. So at this point, they're sitting outside trying to discuss what a plan of action should be. Now, these people are desperate. They want them to come back and really investigate. But unfortunately, now here's where it gets interesting. They had other engagements. Now, this is October 1974. Now, remember, we had Amityville. We had the Perone family, which is where The Conjuring was based on. So we had Rhode Island, Connecticut going on at the same time, and Long Island. Now, they said they had to get back to Connecticut. Now, the only incident at that time in Connecticut was one that's not really discussed. It's the Lindley Street haunting. You ever hear of it? Yeah, family, I have. A family named the Goodens was involved in this. Now, this is the one that had the infamous talking cat. There was a policeman that went to the house, and the cat walks up to the policeman and starts asking him about his dead brother. So you think this, this is where they were going to? I believe they were on their way to... I think they're on their way to Bridgeport to go to Lindley Street. I mean, this gives us a little bit of a timeline because, so and I could be wrong. I the they I don't think they entered the scene on Amityville until March seventy six. So I think it was a little after that. But it but the Perone family had been taking place. I forget when right. that started to slow down, and then um sounds like this this is placing them in this is the warren timeline this is placing them around the time that they would be going to the lindley case it was november 1974 the lindley case really burst wide open right and they were known to be in the area at that time so i believe that's where they were they were involved in the lindley finishing up the lindley street case so they that's so they leave they leave the scene they're gone and so before they leave though ed looks at john says look you're working as a reporter. And John goes, yeah, because so you're used to asking questions and all that. He goes, well, I'm a pre-med student. He said, I'm a student assistant. I'm just working for the paper. He said, but yeah, I mean, I do investigative work because, you know, part of being a medical student is learning diagnoses and pathology and, you know, all that. So, we, you know, he's a scientist, basically. So he's used to investigating things, asking questions. So he said, well, you're a reporter. He says, can you do us a favor? Can you get us some information? And he goes, what do you need? He goes, I need the name of people that, you know, possibly owned the house before them. I need to know certain records about, you know, where the house was originally, the property, so on and so forth. He said, can you do all that? And then John goes, yeah, I can get that information because you go to the county record office and things like that. And back then, a lot of the Catholic, a lot of the church, especially the Catholic church, would keep like birth records and wedding records, death records, things like that. So it wasn't too hard to, for him to get started. Like I said, it wasn't hard for him to get started. As he started, it got hard to get out of because it got deeper. This was one hell of a rabbit hole. He never thought it would go like this. And I'll tell you what happened after that. So John talks to Lorraine. And Lorraine says, I have faith in you. You have a background for this. You'll, you'll be okay. If you're not, just go back to the priest. And John's like, okay. He's not anticipating any problems. So... Now he takes off to find out who owned this house. And that's when it starts getting crazy. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So John leaves the family. He doesn't have a whole lot of connection with them. He did promise them that he would not use their name, that they didn't want the publicity, and he would try to keep it as you know quiet as possible. So he now has to go to state records offices. He has to go to the church to see if he can get birth records because he's trying to find who the original owner of this house was and where this house was located. And, he, and we, can, we can use their alias to yes. refer to them as the family, right? Right. We can use that. We're going to call them the DeMarco family. How's right. that? That's what we're going to call them DeMarco. So the DeMarcos then basically now own the house. John's going to find out who owned it before the DeMarcos. And the DeMarcos' daughter is the one who's in danger at this point. And we've got to, and John knows he's got to move fast because the kid's getting worse every day. Let me, and let me, when we say getting worse, okay. So picked up a Ouija board, um, right. started interacting with that. But what what kind of visuals do we have here? What is okay. being seen? Here's what's going on. The sister, this is how the whole thing starts. So after she gets the Ouija board, the sister wakes up one night and she's just hot and she's like boiling. She gets up, she looks around the room and she sees this black shadow coming in under the door, heading towards her sister. The shadow crawls up the side of the bed, gets to the sister and she sees the shadow enter into her mouth and her nostrils and sees her sister stiffen up and her sister slowly levitates a bit off the bed. Wow. She's not sure what's going on at this point because the kid either stiffened her back or she's actually levitating off the bed. Slams down, screams, and then the sister screams and the parents come running in and the whatever that dark shadow was disappears. But it entered, entered her. Yes, it entered her. That was the first time they knew that they had an entry into her. Turns out it wasn't the first time. That's what we found out later on, that this kid had been doing this for months. And this thing was becoming bolder and bolder and bolder. Why it became bolder and bolder? That's another interesting point of this I'll get to in a second, because let's just take you to where John wound up. So he winds up at a state as a state park where one of the houses had been moved from 
And it turns out that the DeMarco family wanted to do the house exactly as it had been when it was first built. So they tried to find some of the furniture or period furniture that went along with the house, right? So they went to an estate sale and it turns out they actually got three or four pieces that had originally come with this house. Now, one of these pieces was a huge break front. Now, if anybody knows what a break front, a break front is basically you store dishes and all kinds of things in it, right? So the break front was put into the house. Now, John does a little more research, finds out where the house came from, gets an idea where the family is. So he goes, he wants to have a meeting with the Marcos again. So he goes to meet with the Marcos, and it's very interesting. He gets to the house, and the, the older daughter's there, and she has her boyfriend with her. The boyfriend turns out to be a friend of John's. He didn't know he was dating her. They had been in freshman biology classes together. And he knows this guy's a very straight shooter. Very, I mean, he was going to be a research scientist, a very straight shooting kind of guy. And he tells John, as they're sitting there waiting for the mother and father show up, they're sitting at the picnic table, the infamous picnic table you'll talk about, sitting outside the house in the backyard. He comes, he tells her that he's sitting there one night and he sees a salt shaker that was up on the break front. It lifts up, starts to float down towards the table, gets down towards the table, spins, and then turns over. And he's like, okay. A couple of seconds later, a glass of water starts to tip. Doesn't tip over all the way. It stands like it's stock still, and they're all just staring at it. This is what he saw and told John. Then the glass flipped back, shattered. Nobody knew what to do at that point. Right. The son started getting upset. The younger daughter just sat there morosely, not saying a word, making a sound, and everybody else is in a state of shock. They calmed the boy down. The daughter just seems to be out of it at this point, like she's gone into some kind of a trance. As John starts peeling back, he starts wanting to talk to friends of the younger daughter. So he is able to arrange a chance for him to meet with the kids. Now, remember, it's 1974. So for an adult to go into a high school or a junior high school wasn't unusual, especially if there was a problem in town, they want to talk to some of the local kids. Well, you know, back then, adults had a different level of respect because back then you didn't know a lot of like the molester. You didn't think about that. This was an adult and you respected all adults. Gotta remember, mm -hmm. 1974, okay? So put your head in that game. It's very important. And this family, the DeMarcos, they're all in with John at this oh, point yeah. because they are they need help and they're desperate. And they haven't and he, heard from they haven't heard from Ed and Lorraine. So John is still handling all of this for them. Right. He's their go-to. Is he at this point? Is he trying to report back to Ed and Lorraine, or is he just collecting data and investigating? He's collecting data because getting a hold of them is not easy. He tried once, but they were again gone. So he again, nineteen seventy-four. We're not talking about mobile phones. <laughs> no answering machine. That basically even the answering machines were rudimentary of even there at that time. So he would occasionally get maybe somebody who was at the house or get word through to a contact that he finally was able to get it. It was really difficult. Let's just say he was kind of left on his own. You know, he was just waiting for them to check back in with him. And they would check back in, I guess, at the school newspaper. It's the only way they really could get a hold of him or the student union because, or the professor originally they contacted, or maybe the DeMarcos. I never got clear on that. I'd have to really discuss that with John. It's very difficult for John to discuss this, to be honest with you. Every time he does, there's an incident. And 
We'll get to that in a little bit too, because I was witness to a couple of them. We'll go into that in a minute. This is a really strange energy situation. Anyway, John interviews the kids. He finds out later on that there's more stuff that went on because the kids started coming over in the afternoon and they started becoming part of the seances. And then they contacted that they wanted to know who the entity was that they were talking to. So one afternoon, they all put their hands on the planchette and it spells out the word, the Dutchman. He names himself the Dutchman. And so this is how they know who they're dealing with. Right. After that. It makes me think, uh, it just makes me think of those. It's such an, an innocuous sounding name or word. And yet it, it makes me think of Cap, like Captain Howdy from The Exorcist, you know, naming oneself with this sort of innocuous, innocent sounding label that then comes to have a lot of gravity and a lot of uh, weight to it. If you notice, entities are very specific about not naming the true names because right. in, the world, in the world of mysticism and magic, and I've hung around, I've hung around with a lot and did research with a lot of witches. If you name a thing, you have power over it. So not to name a thing is very important for them. So they will come with these like names like Captain Howdy or call themselves Aaron, whatever, whatever name comes to their mind, or you know, I mean, the uh, the stranger, whatever they want to call themselves. But this guy decided to call himself the Dutchman because back then. I think when he was doing business there, he, the townspeople would say, oh, that's the Dutchman because he was a moneylender. And so you'd always get like, you know, that would be, oh, that's the German guy. Because back then, again, 1890s, 1880s, you were done by an ethnic or this kind of background name, you know? Right. A lot of times it'd be like, you know, well, that's the Dutch gentleman who lives up the street. So that's the Dutchman, so on and so forth. So he called himself the Dutchman. Okay, that's it. The problem was when they got the name, then things changed again. There was another incident where the kids came over and the girl was sitting in the chair. And all of a sudden, she starts to scream, but no sound comes out of her mouth. This is John talking to like five or six kids who witnessed this. So they're scared. The kids jump up to try to get her. The chair skitters away from the table, spins wildly around, lifts up off the floor, slams down again. And these there are two boys that are there who are on like the, you know, the middle school football team. Big farm boys can't pull her out of the chair. They get knocked off to the side. Now it's complete mayhem in the house. That's only one incident. There were at least three, four, five, six more incidents like that involving even the family dog getting possessed and almost tearing the mother apart and racing it through the house. This got really, really bad. And as John tried to dig deeper into it, he finally found the name of the person that owned the house before. It turns out he was not a very well-liked person. He was a moneylender. Uh, he also had a proclivity for, well, they say, and we haven't gotten all the proof on it, but we did find a name that correlated with some people from a society called the Golden Dawn. Now, if you're familiar with the Golden Dawn, that was Aleister Crowley, who was very prevalent in New York society at that period of time. And you know that mysticism was really big back then. Even Houdini was investigating mystics at that time, right? So they think he possibly, because he was in the money, he was in the money trade. He was a very wealthy gentleman. And we know that some people have interesting hobbies, especially when you're wealthier, you will get involved in all kinds of interesting things. And we're going to leave it there. 
We can take a look at today's modern day millionaires and see the kind of billionaires and see the things they get involved in, correct? And we won't even go that far. But let's just say that he was interested in it. Also, it's power. And he also had a proclivity for the ladies. He was kind of a ladies' man. And it seems that an artist and his wife had moved into town, but they had wanted to open a flower shop and wanted to loan some, borrow some money to open up this flower shop. Well, turns out that our Dutchman took a shine to the woman. But you see, you got to remember something. The Dutchman also was known as a very hardcore racist. Now, a lot of people were very racist. Did you even see another movie that is based on some other Warren investigations? You'll see that he didn't want anybody who was Jewish or Italian or of certain ethnic backgrounds living in his properties or anywhere nearby, right? And it was prevalent with a lot of people back then. It wasn't just unique to this one individual because our Dutchman was the same way. When he found out that this was an Italian immigrant who had married a Jewish woman, and they both had emigrated, they both were in New York and had moved to New Jersey because the families didn't like it because of the fact one was Catholic, one was Jewish, and it was kind of, you know, not considered a cool thing back then. So they left New York and moved to New Jersey. Now, you gotta remember, moving to New Jersey was like going to the woods, okay? You gotta remember, this is the 1880s, 1890s, so it's in early 1900s, so it wasn't like really well-paved roads and things like that. You're out in the, you're out in the farm country, okay? Trying to establish yourself. But Wayne was a nice little town. It was near Patterson. So it was established communities. So he wanted to open this floral shop. He didn't want to lend the husband money because he was Italian. But he really liked the wife. It seems that he had come from, we can find out later on through a newspaper article, somehow something had gone wrong during a meeting between a local businessman or somebody who was at the, at the apartment of these people. The wife threw herself out of a window, committed suicide. Was our Dutchman involved? We have some people that are saying from the family that he did take a liking to some woman in town at that same period. And it was involving a business deal that had gone very foul. Okay. So we have only some newspaper articles, some bits and pieces, but you know, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls with less information. <laughs> So bring it back to the house. Like, how does this come back to the events of that of, All right. of the house? So now we go back to the house. So now he, what we can find out, might have made a deal with, let's say, an entity on the other side. Okay. How did kind of, uh, kind of a deal with the devil? How did you? Okay. So based on like, how did you figure that? How did John discover this? this? John found this out because as he's looking through. Okay, the breakfront. Remember, I talked about the breakfront. Right. It turns out that the child had been playing in the house and messing around and bumped into the break front. A door in the break front had opened and there was an urn, like a brass type of urn that had been inside the break front. The kid thought possibly maybe there was some treasure or something in it. Now, a lot of times funeral urns, I think like they'll be almost the same way. They'll put them into a family piece of furniture, whatever it is. So she went to, it was sealed in black wax, had some strange writing she said on it. And according to what I was, we found out, she cracked the thing open. When she cracked the thing open, her Ouija board, which really hadn't been working all that well, became working really well. So at this point, we're trying to figure out what had gone on. We couldn't really get a clear answer. John started doing more and more research into how this guy operated, how these things work, started getting into the paranormal. 
and started to tell me that some of these people would do things like try to capture demons. There was a thing back in the 1890s to try to capture spirits. People would try to capture spirits. They'd have spirit, remember spirit jars? Mm-hmm. Things like that. This was basically a spirit jar situation. You can still so, buy them at Disney at the Haunted Mansion. Um, <laughs> you know, it's funny, but you're right. Weirdly enough, you can actually, you can try to buy these things. I mean, they've made a joke out of them. But they're yeah. very serious about back then. You can even go yeah. on eBay and see ghosts in jars and things. Oh yeah, like that, right? yeah. It's not. It's not a. It's not a. Even though it's, I guess, newish on the auction site. It's well, newish twenty years, but it's not uh, new in the scheme of paranormal it stuff. It goes on. That's the point. It is yeah. a thing, and it's been proven that these people did this. And some people actually kept these jars around for a long time as you know curios, and they sell them at oddity shops and stuff like that. Oh, you can buy a ghost jar. Well, this guy's ghost jar didn't contain a ghost. He had contacted something very dark. One of these entities that might have come in from another dimension. Because we're not sure, you know, you can say hell or heaven or whatever you believe, because faith does put labels on these things. But just remember, we're not sure exactly what these things are. From the first caveman who encountered one to the day that this has gone on to even today, this is energy. And even, you know, and even physicists have said that energy can go transdimensional. So we don't know if it's an interdimensional being, what this thing is. We do know one thing, though. It was malevolent. It was not happy about being trapped. And it started a lot of trouble. Now, the Dutchman had already now possibly been involved in a suicide. Or maybe he was the one that forced the suicide. We don't know really what would happen. Now, in the script that John and I wrote for the movie, yes, we did a cinematic take on what we believe from the fragments we had. Of course, there's a lot of that goes on. That's normal. But the real deal comes down to we don't know what this guy was really up to we do know that this jar existed it had something in it so we think he made a deal with this thing and then tried to either get out of the deal by trapping it or making sure it kept this part of the bargain by sealing it up now he passed away in the interim between all this now when john went and interviewed the remaining family members he could find which was like an elderly cousin and her nephew and her nephew, she spoke about how he used to keep the room dark and he had this jar and he would occasionally just sit there and kind of cradle the jar and finger the jar. He was talking to people. It was just, it was eerie. It was so bad that when he passed away, the Catholic Church did not want him in their graveyard. The other Dutch Reformed Church did not want them in his graveyard. It turned out later on he was found in a unkept, unkept, falling down, just dropping into a hole, part of the Methodist graveyard. Where ne'er, occasionally they would, because they were very charitable, they let ne'er do wells and people like that be buried there. They even changed his name, I believe, on the gravestone. I have to talk to John, I'll have to ask John that he couldn't be identified. The family didn't want anything to do with him. The house went into basically an auction situation. The furniture was just basically sent out again for auction. And it wound up at other relatives' house. That's how it wound up this other famous house because there was a relative of these people, these very famous people, very well-respected people in New Jersey. And his furniture wound up in their house. So but this... When they, so when you, did the estate sale, his furniture, specifically not the furniture originally came with the family, of course, went on the auction block. They wanted to get rid of it. So with the okay, so you have the Dutch, the Dutchman, who you believe is actually a spirit that has made a deal with something darker. Something darker comes along. 
let me get to that point. Yeah. Real quick, if you don't mind, let me jump in on that one. This is what John and Lorraine both figured out together. What happened was that the Dutchman had passed on and he wanted revenge. Well, he meets the entity on the other side who grants him the ability if you'll get me this, this, and this. They made some kind of crazy deal. He comes back, but he's not effective. He's not getting the job done as quickly as this entity wants. This thing's impatient now after being locked up all these years and now it's free. He wants retribution. So he doesn't feel the Dutchman's doing his job correctly. He forces the Dutchman out, takes over the persona of the Dutchman, appears as the Dutchman. Because Lorraine said, there's a human spirit here, but there's something else. And John said he felt like he was pulled in two different directions when he first got nailed by this thing. So both he and Lorraine, John being empathic and Lorraine being who she was, they both felt it. So this may be the first time that we have a demon making a deal with a, a ghost making a deal with a demon and a demon being torqued at the ghost saying, nope, you're going into limbo and I'm taking over. Because when Lorraine later on contacts the entity in the graveyard, when they went to go look in the graveyard to find the lost grave, which is another incident that you'll see in another movie, you have to find the graves. Graves are very important. A lot of psychic people say that finding the graves is standard, you know, standard thing. When they get out to the graveyard, Lorraine stops still right in front of this one grave, according to John. And the little girl now is even with them. And Ed. And this kind of taking care of the little girl because it's getting bad. John felt like he was getting knocked over. And he felt like, again, the two presences. And Lorraine said that the Dutchman was in a gray zone, alone, miserable, and upset with what he had done because he had turned this thing loose and he had no way of, of stopping it. That's when Lorraine said, okay, this is not a human haunting. This is a demonic entity of some type. And then that's when they had to get the Catholic priest involved and they had to have two exorcisms for this place. One didn't do it. It took two. So they re-entered the scene. John is still involved. And, right. And, and he gets all the information. He finally is able to get a hold of Ed Lorraine and says, I've got everything you need. So they come back. When they come back, that's when he, they, he said, I think I found the grave. So they all left the child to make sure they had it right. Because unfortunately, she was the litmus paper for this. It's a shame, but that's the way it worked. So the child, who's half out of it, Ed, John, and Lorraine go to this broke down, ripped up old cemetery. And as they're walking through, John points out where he thinks he found the grave and Lorraine stands there and that's what takes it and take it from there. Then they decided John's part of it was over. John, after that day, kind of went to go write his article and it was up to Ed and Lorraine to get the exorcisms done. And John didn't know about the exorcisms until a couple of months afterward when he ran into the daughter and his friend on campus. And so the, when the Lorraine's or when the Warrens came back in, when Ed and Lorraine came back in, they enlist the help of a church uh, of the Catholic church. They have these two exorcisms, which is always right. difficult to document because the church doesn't really comment on exorcisms. It has no. performed, which is admittedly, I mean, it is a big loophole in a lot of the Warren stories because it's hard to verify that information. It's the big, it's the big, we'll just call it the bugaboo. It is the big 
elephant sitting in the room. It really yeah. is, always is. Always but, a investigation. But as far as the family goes, the DeMarcos, so John leaves, he, he runs into them randomly after he has kind of exited the scene, exit scene right, right. and they say these exorcisms did happen, and the family says this is now kosher again everything's gone back to normal yeah to a point but here's the problem maybe their problem stopped but john's didn't that's where it comes down to because when he sees his friend again and the daughter he's not telling them that for the last few months he's had sitting in his house or sitting you know even at the school he's sitting there and the overhead light will flash one two three now that one two three also happened at the house before an incident would happen at the house the marco family all them would say that they would see the lights flash one two three and then something would go on so john starts seeing now the three lights flashing and then things would happen like he had electrical appliances would literally blow up now one thing we do know about these kind of entities they have an interest for some reason, electricity is very much part of them. Okay, magnetism, electricity, so on and so forth. But they love electrical appliances. John is an electrician. He's had ceiling fans he's installed. He knows what he's doing. And they've he's had like three pulses and then they explode. Now, as this all went on, right? As this all went on, now, John does not want to tell this story. And I, I pushed him for years. I said, man, you got a great story here. This is all through the 90s, the early 2000s, before the Conjuring things, all this other stuff went on. I said, you really should. Now, he did have contact with the Warrens again because Ed was very interested in filming some of the incidents that he's been dealing with. And videotape was kind of a new medium to a lot of people. John was very familiar with it. So John actually had met with them again to talk about videotaping and things like that. So he'd, he'd run across them again. But they had no contact beyond that point again. So it was just, you know, they didn't even discuss the DeMarco incident. They probably just pretty much left it. And John didn't even bring it up, which is really interesting to me that he never even told them about what he's been going through. Because it would come and go. He thought it was just like random. He didn't really think anything of it because he didn't say anything. There's nothing insidious. It was just three, you know, the three pulses and something blow up. Nothing really major happened. But as time went on, it got worse. He'd be in the field somewhere and something weird would go on. And like I said, he became a combat photographer. He got involved in some very crazy situations because he always felt like his time now was ticking away from him because he was marked. Something was marking him. He, was being, he felt like he was always chased by something. And the funny part of it comes down to is that even as John became, even started doing some writing, wrote a couple of, I worked with him a couple of comic books and some books and things like that. He always had this thing about getting things done and getting them done quickly and getting them out of the way before something would go wrong. He just was privately haunted by something. And I'm his friend for 30 some odd years. We were very close friends. But John's the kind of person that just, you just don't ask because you're not really going to get a response. He's very flat with certain things. And but this used to pique him. Then it got bad, though. That's the thing. Then it got bad and he came to me. Because he knew I knew some people that might be able to help. So he started having more and more incidents at his own home many years later, 30, 40 years down the road, let's say. His and this is these are the things I find interesting about this is that I mean, look, I've and I've talked about it on this podcast, I've talked about it elsewhere. I, you know, I do think that sometimes there are things with the Warren cases that don't line up for me. 
But what I do find interesting is you have a track record of John, who was a started out as a med student and also writing for the newspaper and got involved in this case, which he then wrote about. And that was published in the newspaper as well. This the, talking about this case. And but this is oh, not a person. This is not a person. That, say again. Here's the other thing, too. If you ever, when I was a college instructor, now John was a professor. He actually taught at you know a university for ten years. He taught communications, and it's interesting to me is that the fact that when you work for school papers, doing kind of school projects, you're usually graded on you know doing this kind of thing as part of your as part of your uh, your grade point average and things like that. A lot of times it was back in the day, so they were very specific about the parameters of what you were doing, uh, publishing anything you came up with because it would reflect on yourself and the school. Correct. Mm-hmm. So they saw the article and the editor of the paper was a professor who went on to become an, uh, a pe- uh, worked for the Court of Appeals, I believe, in the D.C. area, approved the article and let it go forward as did well, other people. And then years passed. So now we're 47 years down the road. And right. obviously it's, it's been about yeah. two coming up on two years since Lorraine Warren passed away. But during this time, this is not like. It's not like John has then built a career trying to be a paranormal investigator or get on TV as a as a ghost hunter. But so there's that. But it's also the Warrens, to my knowledge, never came out and either. Well, they they didn't they didn't dispute his reporting, nor did they uh, verify it. But it does seem like. That would have been something that if they were going to push back on, they were pretty vocal enough and they had a platform that they could have done that. Well, the thing is, people who knew Ed and Lorraine had run across John at certain shows. And one time I actually had asked him, and it's really funny. It was the show that I premiered my movie. I actually premiered my movie at one of the uh, the conventions, the horror convention, the same one we had done. And I had thought it would be really kind of cool because I had John work with me on the movie. He was my he was one of my line producers. And he was working with me. And he's actually did a talk on what happened. And it was about a two and a half hour talk. It went on for a lot longer than we thought in one of the bigger ballrooms, you know. And he had a hell of a crowd. He had like about three, 400 people in there. It was a good crowd. And he was telling them that. And there were two or three people who actually were connected with the Warrens and didn't question what John was saying because he had been filling in some gaps that they'd been wondering about from what I could understand. So this is a very, very unusual investigation because John is reticent to talk about it. I have to literally, I'm sorry, I had to, I pushed him to do it. I thought, you know, helping catharsis, maybe get out of your system, maybe a little better. I'm going to be honest with you. I feel kind of guilty in a way because, you know, something, every time he talks about it, it gets, something happens. It gets worse and worse. And then there was the incident at my house. If you want to get into that, we'll talk about that sometime or today, whatever. Well, let's come back to that because yeah. we are we are running long for the podcast stuff, but it's interesting. I do apologize. No, 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 no. But it is it's interesting because not at all. Plus it gives a, a teaser to, you know, set up the next thing, you know, down the road. But um, a teaser, just trying to get yeah. a story out. The uh the but what's interesting is that this happened and then feels like perhaps something made the leap at least john feels that way made the leap to him and it's kind of lingering around him now it attached itself to him because he was a sympathetic i guess his vibration was as sympathetic i suppose as lorraine's but he wasn't as well guarded as lorraine was lorraine knew how to block and defend herself 
Unfortunately, John didn't know how to make ICS these uh, mystic wall that would separate the two, yeah. as it were. But it's really interesting because I brought in, like I said, a friend of mine who I haven't seen in a very long time, but she was a very dark witch. And she was a Lilith, one of those Lilith worshippers. So very, very dark. But even she said, when this whole thing on with John, that this thing was basically writing him until it got what it wanted. Now, it's very interesting. A lot of these things want to be left alone, right? A lot of the, you'll say they want to be left. There are other ones that feed on human energy and they enjoy it. They eat it like it's delicious. This is one of those. Mm-hmm. He will drain your energy. Thing is, this wants more. It wants its story to be told. Because this way it can not only, I, I sat there and said, are you kidding me? It's kind of like a, somebody wants to just not scare. One person wants to scare hundreds of thousands of people. And she looked at me and she goes, kind of like that. I said, really? This is a needy and greedy entity. Maybe yeah. it's not a bad person or a good person. I couldn't tell you that. I wouldn't know. But I can tell you that much. It's, it loves attention. I'll tell you that much. Yeah, I mean, that is that is a recurring theory with a lot of these types of darker things that they do feed off of a fear and that acknowledgement empowers them. So, well, with that said, I mean, this it, this is a crazy story, and I, I think there is more to be told down the yeah, road. Yeah. But it, like, but as far as the DeMarco's family, where are they now? And is there still any ongoing contact or lines of communication open with them? Uh, a little while after everything went on, they sold the house to another family who have had no problems from what I understand, but we can figure out. There's been no, because I haven't heard anything about that section of New Jersey having trouble in that area. What's funny though, is that there was a house that was not far away from there that came from another estate. They actually dismantled the house because there were problems with ghosts and put mm. the house back together, trying to get the ghosts out of it. They actually took the house apart, put it back together to try to rid themselves of the ghosts. So it's interesting what goes on in this particular area. But this other family's had no problems. They pretty much have disappeared, gone their way in life. Uh, this is 1974, so we have an 11-year-old. Figure what an 11-year-old would be now, these days. How old she yeah, would like be? 57, about. Easily. And the younger son probably is in his late 40s, early 50s. The older daughter is probably in her 60s, close to 70s. So, And I don't even know if the parents are still around because they'd be 80s, 90s. So it's hard to tell at this point. I do know that what we have left, though, is a newspaper article, a college professor, and a really strange incident that still has not been properly explained and may never be explained. Well, and the, just that imagery of the, the thing coming into the room, the, the shadow, and then going oh, into the girl is terrifying. There was more. Believe me, there's more. The... Well, uh, the, with that said, Mitch, thank you for sharing this story. Before I let you go, where can people find you and follow your work? It's simple. If you want to know more about this particular investigation or any of the work I'm doing, you can go to www.themitchhyman.com. You spell my name as it's spelled, M-I-T-C-H-H-2-H-Y-M-A-N.com. And you'll find other information I'll be honest with you, it's been kind of quiet because of the pandemic, everything going on. I haven't really done a lot at the website. I've been working on another film project, some other things. It was a Bubba project, some other things. But I'm now refocusing like a lot of czar. I'm coming out of my, you know, my cocoon. And we're going to get things rolling again and see what happens. But as far as this piece goes, Aaron, I'd like to see this thing get a little further because I don't think the public's ever seen anything like this specifically, okay? 
That's just right. my opinion. And I've been around this stuff for a bit. It's like, so I, just saying. I, I definitely want to hear more. So cool. Well, uh, Mitch, thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, I'll, we'll keep, we'll keep track of this. And as more things develop, one last thing, I'm sorry. One last thing. If you are interested in seeing the, uh, the video I did with John, uh, you can find it on YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Mitch Hyman. You'll also see Aaron and I doing a paranormal investigation panel with Al going back and some other people, Ting Rapperson, some other folks at a comic convention from a couple of years ago. A Megacon. Yep. The Megacon that we did, which was brilliant. Great. It was, you really enjoy that panel. Aaron, you, we had a great time. It was wonderful. But again, if you want to go there and take a look, also you go to horrorfuel.com or use the link on my website and you can see the full interview with John where he discusses what he went through and what went on in his own words. Thanks for listening. Please consider giving Nightmarica a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps raise awareness and boost the show's rankings. Also, give me a follow on social media, at Nightmarica on Instagram and Facebook, and at Aaron Sagers on Instagram and Twitter. And share Nightmarica with your friends. If you are able, I'd really appreciate your support on patreon.com slash Aaron Sagers, where I also create tiki recipes, hold live streams, and share exclusive content. If you'd like to share your own paranormal stories or get paranormal advice for entertainment purposes only, email nightmericashow at gmail.com. <laughs>